The reading is taken from Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in, you, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, 
how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon your generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Our Father God, we want to rightly understand Jesus. We want to understand who he was. Uh, for, those of, for those of us who are Christians, we want to love him. Not a caricature we may have, but the real Jesus Christ. And yet these words are not the nicest ones we hear from him. And so please, help us understand them rightly so that we are rightly warned, rightly examined our own lives, and do continue to give thanks to our Saviour, even as he speaks harsh words. Help us hear rightly as we've sung, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you remember the case last year of James McCormick. James McCormick was the, uh, the fraudster who uh, bought uh, golf ball detectors for 13 quid from the States and then sold them for £30,000 to uh, police force and uh, army, particularly in Iraq, saying they were bomb detectors and uh, this little needle will help you find a bomb. That's not a bad markup. Uh, That's quite a lot of profit you're making. So... um, he made himself in a fortune of over fifty million pounds. Houses in Bath were three million. Florida, Cyprus, extraordinary profit the man made. Of course, the downside with his profit was that at the time he was selling them, about twelve IEDs were going off in Iraq every day and killing people because they were particularly used at checkpoints, and people would wave this golf ball detector over vehicles and people. We're safe. No problem here, and be blown up and die. Now, I had friends serving out in Iraq at that, at that time when he was selling these devices. For myself, I mean, it's not the best confession for a minister to make. I find it not hard not to loathe someone like that who is selling devices knowing they're useless in order to make a great deal of money. Now he got 10 years in prison, and um, uh, the fortune is being whittled down as compensation claims are launched by, against him by victims who were blown up. And so he'll have nothing left when he gets out of prison. Good. Good. Because that's wickedness, what he was doing there. I don't know what was going on through his head. If he joined up the dots, I give this device, people think they're safe, I kill them. I don't know if he managed to ever join up the dots in his head. But that is wickedness. And I would have strong words to say to him. If you were the, I don't know quite who worked it out, first of all, um, certainly the British forces didn't buy any of these things. They were used by Iraqi forces at checkpoints, etc. But uh, say you've come from the Ministry of Defence, you go to Iraq, you know this device is dud. What do you do? 
I take it you explain to everyone using them, don't use that. If you're a soldier, you might use slightly more colourful language. Don't use that piece of... Uh, because it's no good for you. But you'd be pretty blunt. That's rubbish. Your life's in danger. Get rid of it. And that's what we find Jesus doing here. That's where we join him in Matthew 23. So this sort of language, you hypocrites, you vipers, you send people to hell, you will be going to hell. I mean, it's pretty strong language that Jesus is using here. But it's because he wants to warn both the audience who are listening to the teachers of the law, to the Pharisees, and these people themselves. You've got to stop that. We're not mucking about. People's eternities are at stake. So here we are, Matthew 23. Now I take it uh, when Liz kindly read it for us, no one thought, oh, brilliant. It's my favorite bit of the Bible. I always turn, whenever I'm down, or whenever I'm feeling a bit blue or a bit feeble, I always turn up Matthew 23. It always, you know, really gives me a whoo-hoo. Uh, no, you don't, no, none of us feel that way. If you're here for the first time, oh, welcome, Matthew 23. Yeah, we're in a 10-week series in it. We are not. Um, no one gets excited, I think, I don't think, by something like this. What do we do with this chapter? Actually, one of the, I don't know if this is fair or not, but one of the thoughts that ran through my head this week is, I don't know how many, this may be, you can tell me if this is unfair, I don't know how many churches even in central London would ever have this on a Sunday. Because the interesting thing about that is, if you wouldn't have this on a Sunday in church, that's a church that wouldn't have Jesus preach there. Oops. That's a bit awkward. I don't know if that's fair or unfair. But even for you and me, how, what do we do with this? We can't just say, Jesus was having a bad day. You know, we all have them. We can't say that. He's perfect. And if we can't somehow fit Matthew 23 in Jesus' words in Matthew 23, if we can't somehow fit that into our understanding of who Jesus is, we've got a caricature bit like being married to a spouse and you have no idea what they do for their job. You kind of get them. There's quite a big bit missing. You don't really understand them. You can't fit this into your view of Jesus somehow. You kind of get him, but you're missing him at the same time. Because he's a loving saviour, but he does warn. He warns in very clear terms. So let me uh, make a few brief comments on that, or perhaps sharpen the question. How do you reconcile this with something like the Sermon on the Mount, where, you know, Matthew chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And here we see Jesus laying into his enemies in no uncertain terms. What do you, doesn't, three quick comments on that, and then we're into it. One. Uh, what first will be this? Love your enemies. Yes. And Jesus does. In the most costly fashion possible. He dies for them. We see him on the cross. And as Paul would put it, it's why we were still enemies that Christ died for us. So yes, love your enemies. Yes, says Jesus, of course. Second little comment. To warn is to love. Or part of love. 
to warn people, if you keep on doing that, you're in serious trouble. That is a loving thing to do. Often you, it's a costly thing to do because you warn someone, they don't like it. If, I've got to tell you, I know you're engaged, I don't think you should marry that person, it'll be a disaster. <laughs> that's an awful, you know, that's, that's a conversation that never goes well, uh, in my opinion, or not my opinion, in my experience. Um, but if you really think that to love, it's, it's to warn. Okay, so Jesus, lo- love your enemies, yes, and he does. Secondly, warning is part of loving. And third little comment. He will return to judge. So Jesus says, love your enemies. And he does that, but not forever. There's a time when he returns, and all those who are opposed to him who have never reconciled with God. There is a time of, well, justice, judgment. So loving enemies, yet, but not endlessly so. So for you and for me, love your enemies, says Jesus, love your enemies. And actually, it's knowing that one day in the future there's a day of justice enables you to love your enemies. If you are a Christian in northern Iraq and you've seen your children slaughtered by IS at the moment, I don't know how you love them. Apart from saying, I, I, would do, I, will, I will do everything I can to love you. I, I know at some point in the future there's a justice day. Either you will pay for your crimes or you'll let Jesus pay for your crimes. But I, I trust that. It's the only way I can emotionally reconcile myself to what's taken place now. So just for that in place, how do, we, how do we deal with something like this? How does Jesus say, love your neighbors and say this? Yes, he is loving. He loves his neighbors by dying. Yes, but to warn is to love. And thirdly, there is an end to that period of loving. Justice comes. Okay, let's turn to Matthew 23. Broadly, broadly, I mean, there's a whole stack of detail which we're going to have to run through very, very quickly, unless you want a 10-week series, and I don't think anyone does, uh, on this. But let me just say, when you come to something like this, I think really there's three ways we take it or apply it. One, beware. Jesus says, beware. There are plenty of those who set themselves up as teachers, Christian teachers, and they are not. Beware. Two, compare. As in comparison, not who. Uh, compare. When Jesus goes through this list of hypocrisy, just ask the questions of yourself. Am I guilty of this sort of hypocrisy in my own Christian life? You don't want to be a hypocrite who says, oh, yes, all those people over there are guilty of all these seven woes that I have have nothing to do with any of them. We don't want to be them. So beware, compare. And then eventually we have to say, we have to declare. See what I've done there. Uh, Third, declare. Declare the praises of Jesus Christ, who is not like this. Who is the perfect teacher. Let's run through things uh, as uh, one said. We want to go through it fairly quickly, but... um, uh, again, allow it to do its work upon us. Uh, there's an introduction, verses 1 to 12. The false leaders versus the true leaders, before we get into the woes. So chapter 23, verse 1, who is Jesus talking to? Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Interesting. Uh, by the time you get to the end of the chapter, verse 36, I tell you this: the truth, all this will come upon this generation. So it's a public sermon to a big crowd of people. Okay, But of course, I think... The way he structures it, these teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they've got to be there. 
that's a little bit unsettling who he's really attacking here, the woes. Teachers of the law. That's the Bible teachers in Jesus' time. Pharisees. That's the people who take church seriously. So there's a sense in which Jesus is talking to me and to us here. So again, it's not those people out there all the time. We've got to examine ourselves as we look at this. But uh, you get the first bit as an introduction then. Uh, the false teachers versus the true teachers. So you get the false teachers first of all, verses 2 to 7. Uh, they make a couple of mistakes. They reject grace and embrace greatness. Just run through it quickly. Verse 2. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The false teachers then, they reject grace. So Jesus says, oh, when they're doing what the Old Testament teaches, when they teach you that, that's okay. But most of the time, they're just making life hard for you. They put loads upon you. They say, if you want to be reconciled with God, you must well, keep these 613 laws, classically, in Judaism. Or you must observe these five pillars in Islam. Or you must be good enough, goodianity. They just make life hard for you. They're not offering you forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ. They reject grace. But what, by contrast, they embrace greatness uh, for themselves, verses 5 to 6. Everything they've done is for men to see. And then he gives a whole number of uh, examples. They make their phylacteries, so we all know what they are. Or if not, uh, little boxes that uh, in the Old Testament you have boxes of scripture upon your arm and upon your forehead if you're devout. Just to say, look, I've got the Bible on me. And so they're making, you know, these whopping great, look at my phylacteries, uh, sort of, so everyone can notice. They've got the biggest phylacteries, the, the tassels on their garments are long, they love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi, literally great one or learned one. You know, these are men, as they, as they walk around, they sort of swish their capes like Severus Snape, it's all very dramatic. Uh, they take as much hospitality as a FIFA exec could do. Um, there's corruption here. Don't be like them, the false teachers. They reject grace, but they embrace greatness for themselves. That's what they love. By contrast, true teachers, 8 to 12, by contrast, they're very different. They reject supremacy, but embrace service. So verse 8, you are not to be called rabbi. You have only one master and you are all brothers. And don't, do not call anyone on earth father. For you have one father and he's in heaven. I still don't understand how certain priests in certain churches call themselves father. Give them that verse, I just don't get it. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. Now Jesus isn't saying you can't have any leaders. He appoints 12 disciples and says you'll be the uh, leadership gang, as it were. He's saying, but no supreme leader, no pope. No dear leader that we all bow down to, unless he's eaten too much Swiss cheese or something, so he's sick in bed this week in North Korea. Anyway, that no supreme leader who's infallible. You can't have that. 
there's an equality amongst Christian brothers and sisters. Oh, you can have leaders, but joint leadership and eldership, that's the way to have things. No one infallible man who you follow or woman that's beyond um, uh, rebuke. Can't have that. So you reject supremacy, but embrace service. Verse 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Massive theme in Matthew's gospel, humility. And it's so countercultural. Because throughout the, this gospel, you know, we think, we think that greatness is eating at the nicest tables and restaurants in town. Jesus says greatness is serving at them. And just, it's quite hard to get our heads around that in Christian thinking. So true leaders, well, they'll uh, reject supremacy, don't want to be one above all, and they'll embrace service. That's the introduction. What do you do with it? Well, beware, beware the false leaders. Compare, am I guilty of that in any sort of way? Embracing greatness for myself? Mm-hmm. Declare Jesus, perfect leader, okay? That's how we think about these things as we go through them. Then we're into the woes, the seven woes. Uh, I'd wonder about doing them all, but let's gather them up in a slightly different way. It is hard to know how to structure them. Some would argue there's a, there's a sort of sandwich structure, a chiasm, with uh, obviously verses 23 and 24, the... Um, uh, chopping up of the mint dill, but rejecting law, justice, mercy, faithfulness at the center. That would mean that the heart of Jesus' rebuke is mishandling scripture. If you mishandle scripture, that'll mean you corrupt your audience, and then that'll mean that you reject the truth. And it might work like that. I think more logically is to see it, or more persuasively perhaps, is to see them in pairs. So we're going to run through them. We're going to burn through them fairly, fairly quickly. And yet in God's grace, hopefully they burn us into our hearts where we need to hear them. Let's chop it in these four ways then. Truth, truth is more important than zeal. Mercy matters more than ritual. The inside matters more than the outside. Repentance matters more than nostalgia. Okay, first then. Verses one and two. Sorry, woes one and two. Truth is more important than zeal. Verse 13, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. They're rejecting Jesus and therefore encouraging others to do the same. Come away from that man. And they're slamming therefore the door of heaven in their faces. Very dramatic. I went out as a teenager, my second girlfriend, dramatically used to slam doors, very petulant, very tiresome. Didn't last very long, but it's my fault as much as hers. I probably deserved it. But you know that sort of dramatic slamming of doors, he's saying. Well, just watch out for people who are like that. Woe number one. And alongside it, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert... And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Ouch. Jesus says, these people, they'll go a long, long way to make a convert. But as is sometimes the case, the one converted is even more zealous than the one who's taught them. But you see his point. They're zealous. 
But who cares? They're zealous for lies. Zeal is no mark of truth. Don't follow a passionate imam on jihad just because he's excitable. Please, don't do that. Don't follow a passionate preacher who just whips everything up if he's not teaching biblical truth. Zeal, who cares? If he's not allied to what Jesus says is truth. You know, it's one of my little, one of my little hobby horses at the moment. It just seems every little conference I get invited, and as a minister you get invited to every conference under the sun, but every conference speaker is passionate about unleashing the potential of the next generation, zealous to see men and women grow to their fullness in God. Everyone is passionate and zealous. I guess these are sort of nice words, these sort of conjure up enthusiasm. Who cares? Unless it's true. These men were zealous and passionate, and they took people to hell, says Jesus. Oops. Truth, truth is more important than zeal. Not a good start. Secondly, secondly uh, woes three and four. Mercy matters more than ritual. Verse 16. Woe to you blind guides. Blind, verse 16, they're blind, verse 17, they're blind, verse 19, golly. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Oh, for goodness sake. Jesus, here's an elaborate game of Simon Says. You know how Simon Says works? Uh, jump up and down. <laughs> you got it wrong. You only jump up and down when Simon Says jump up and down. It's that sort of game. Do you remember that? Anyone, you know, everyone just plays on DS's things now, don't they? Um, but they're saying, oh, if you make an oath by the temple, you don't have to keep it. If you swear by the gold of the temple, you do have to keep it. And Jesus says, would you just tell the truth? How about that? Just tell the truth. This elaborate, I mean, they've taken the third commandment about making oaths in God's name. And they've just run with it in a nutty direction. They've added layer upon layer of interpretation and complication upon it. Jesus says, no, just tell the truth. Don't get tricky or complicated about it. Who are you, Pharisees, to say, oh, yes, there was this commandment made in the past. But let, let us enlighten you with the deeper workings of God, how things really work. So again, just beware that sort of thing. Whenever someone says, oh yes, there's this in the Bible, but let me teach you this technique or these rules or regulations as well as that. And then you really know how God works. So again, I'm sure I get more of these things than anyone else. But uh, through the post, you get an inv- I got an invitation uh, over the summer at some point. Uh, come along to a weekend away with Pastor Dodgy. And Pastor Dodgy will uh, unlock the secrets of how you pray in the prophetic. And you think, well, that's nice. Apart from, I think when I read my New Testament, if I'm a believer in Jesus, heartfelt prayer is what God commands. Why has he got the secrets to praying in the prophetic? Where has he found them? Where have they been produced from? You're just adding veneer on top of what Jesus has said. Do you swear by the gold or not by the gold? That's the way you really unlock what God is. No, shut up. Just keep it simple, Jesus is saying here. Just watch out. For that sort of thing. Still here, woe number four. 
Perhaps the central one, uh, some would insist. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. That's a great picture, isn't it? You decide to do some baking in your kitchen. Unlikely for some, but there we go. And you, you, you sieve your flour into a bowl and you think, oh, Mary Berry would be delighted. As you sieve this, this is going to be the finest thing. Meanwhile, the camels in your kitchen does a poo in your recipe <laughs> and then jumps down your throat. Well, that's a waste of time, isn't it? That's Jesus' point. What are you doing here? Yes, the Old Testament says tithe, grain, oil, wine, but you've gone way beyond what the Old Testament says, and you've created all these extra rules, and you're missing the main point. You can't really help read through any section of the Old Testament without thinking, actually, God loves justice and mercy and faithfulness, and he's much more concerned how you treat other people. So, in fact, when Jesus was asked last week, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not complicated, but you ignore that and tithe your herbs? Have you got time to do that? You're missing the point. Don't get more excited by peripheral things than what is central, says Jesus. The day you're far more excited by, I'm a post-millennial and not a pre-millennial, than you are on the cross, you're in trouble. Or whatever it may be, your thing. Now look, mercy matters more than ritual. Third, the inside matters more than the outside. Again, woes five and six. Verse 25, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside also will be clean. So you've got the Bible teachers and the keen bean believers. They are ritually clean. They wash everything in the appropriate way. Who cares, says Jesus. You're full of greed and self-indulgence. Or plunder and lusts. You could equally translate it. Who cares? Who cares that you perform the rituals beautifully? Who cares that you break bread, the Lord's Supper is done in the most elegant fashion, if inside you're a mess. Who cares if you deliver the best sermons, you sing the greatest songs, you offer the loveliest prayers, but inside you're full of lust and greed. Who cares? God doesn't. No, look, verse 26. Clean the inside. Allow Jesus to change you inside. Then that'll affect what you do on the outside. And then um, uh, verse 27, it's the same point really, inside, outside, but even worse, verse 27, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. On the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Simply Jesus saying, look, these, the, the Pharisees, they look good, You listen to them and think, well, if I listen to these people, I'll be a good person, a good believer. Actually, they'll just encourage you to be more wicked. 
because you won't change. They'll just place burdens upon you, he said already, and your behavior won't improve at all. No good. Last, repentance matters more than nostalgia. Verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets, decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. They say, oh, poor Jeremiah, just thrown down a well. God, they treated him badly, didn't they? Poor old Elijah being chased all around the country. They were nasty back then. We would never have treated one of God's speakers, prophets, that badly. And Jesus says, yes, you will. And you're about to fill up the measure of your sin. You're going to kill me. The thing I find slightly unsettling, you you ever find yourself thinking, um, I know I'm a sinner, but I would never have killed Jesus back then. That's kind of what they were saying. Here. I know I don't like really living under God's rules instinctively, but I wouldn't have been that awful. Well, actually, if you encountered the perfect one and you didn't want to live under him, you would have wanted to kill him. What Jesus is saying here, don't say, oh, we would have done better in the past. Don't do that. No, these prophets, they make up tombs. But that's still the case. You'd still get plenty in the Church of England who'd say, oh, Thomas Cranmer, he was very good. Plenty in the Methodist Church. John Wesley, I mean, did lots of very important things. But they hate their teaching. Hate it. You still get that sort of issue around today. So the question thrown up at the end of all these woes, it's not a complicated one. Jesus is saying, will you follow me? Will you follow me? I'm saying you're all guilty. So he addresses the whole verse 36, the whole generation in front of him. And says, oh, you may not all be as bad as the Pharisees and and the teachers, but you're all guilty. So will you follow me? Or, verse 35, upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barakiah, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. You're all just as guilty as them. Do you accept you're guilty? If you don't, you'll be judged, says Jesus. But if you do know you're guilty, you'll allow me to take that. And my blood will deal with the guilt of this generation and every subsequent generation. Will you follow me, says Jesus, the one who says you're guilty but my blood will pay for you? So for chapter 23, I've got to be honest with you, I didn't, you know, I sat down, you know, done a lot of work on Matthew 23 this week, and it isn't one you think, oh, I'm really excited about preaching this one, you know, because it's hard, isn't it? What do you do with it? Beware, says Jesus, beware. There will always, in every generation, be false teachers. Please don't be naive about that. You think they'll keep you safe? Actually, their bomb detection units are useless, and they'll get blown up. Beware the false teachers. Do compare yourself 
Look out for the hypocrisy in your own heart. You know, we've gone through it all very quickly, but if the cap fits, where is it? Where it says Jesus. But then declare. Declare his goodness, your need for him. Not all want to do that. I may have uh, told some of you this before. Uh, Dick Lucas told me this story. He used to be a, a rector of a big church over in um, the other side of town. Uh, in 1955, as a much younger man, uh, he was involved in a mission at Cambridge. Billy Graham was flown over from Texas in, for November of 1955 mission. Uh, a week of talks, eight nights, he was going to speak at Great St. Mary's uh, in Cambridge. And the Times of London was outraged. Who is this fundamentalist hick who is coming to address Britain's finest young men with nonsense? And there was an outrage at this. And uh, by all accounts, Billy Graham, the great evangelist, was a bit intimidated. So for, um, he arrived, and on the Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, he, he tried to preach the most clever and intellectually erudite sermons he could muster. Until, and they weren't great. 2,000 people gathering every night to hear this controversial figure. It looked great. But to all accounts, on the Wednesday afternoon, he had, uh, we had lunch with C.S. Lewis and John Stott. And they said to him, Billy, what are you doing? You're trying to speak like us. And you're not. Just give it straight, Billy. And so Dick Lucas tells the story upon that Wednesday night of November 1955. He was sat uh, in the congregation. On one side of him was the, uh, the Regis Professor of Divinity, Cambridge. On the other side was another chaplain who went on to become a bishop uh, a couple of years later. And uh, Billy Graham stood up and just opened his Bible and said, what I'm going to do this evening is go from Genesis to Revelation and show you every blood sacrifice that takes away sin and how they're all fulfilled in Jesus. And he did. Every blood sacrifice in the whole... Now, that's quite a long lecture he'd have given there. And as Dick tells it, these two men either side of him were just incandescent. What is this fool? Who is this man? How barbaric talking about our guilt and that we need blood to take it away. And they were absolutely furious. And at the end, 400 young people say, we want to become Christians tonight, please. But Jesus says, hey, look, beware, there'll always be those who oppose me. Many of them will be teachers. Just examine your own heart. You are guilty before me. But declare the wonders that my blood can wash away all your sin. You don't need to have that guilt upon yourself. Trust in me. We're going to pause just for 30 seconds or so. And then if you grab your sheets, we're going to say the prayer of confession. And I'm just going to suggest that for 30 seconds, we compare our own lives with the woes that Jesus has uh, sought to address. Then we'll confess our sin and then we'll declare the wonders in the washing away of our sin. Let's just pause for 30 seconds silence. So we say together, Almighty and most merciful Father, 
We have wandered and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done. And we have done those things that we ought not to have done. And there is nothing pure in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us sinners. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent according to your promises declared to mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a disciplined, righteous and godly life to the glory of your holy name. Amen.